Solar panels are only going to work when the sun is out. Batteries have finite capacity and are also pretty expensive and still take up a fair amount of real estate. So these are all issues that we're really wrestling with in the Stanford environment. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm John Fiella, founder of Smart Energy Decisions. If you've been enjoying these conversations, please take three minutes to leave us a review on iTunes. Distributed energy resources in higher ed is a hot topic, but it can absolutely be overwhelming. As the new Executive Director of Sustainability and Energy Management at Stanford University, Lincoln Blevins is addressing the challenges of energy reliability, resilience, and creating a granular room-to-room energy plan. At our recent Distributed Energy Forum, Smart Energy Decisions Director of Research and Content, Deborah Channel, sat down with Lincoln to discuss his plans to move from why to how in implementing distributed energy resources at Stanford. He also discusses the unique intersection between the university and Silicon Valley. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to the conversation between Deborah Channel and Lincoln Blevins. Hi, welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us today. And I'm really excited about this session. We're gonna dig in on higher ed and we've got a really high higher ed with us today. I wanna introduce Lincoln Blevins, who is the Executive Director of Sustainability and Energy Management at Stanford University. And he's a little bit new to that position, but absolutely not new to the industry. He's got some very interesting experience that we're going to talk about. So Lincoln, welcome. And let's just jump right in. Why don't you start, give us a brief description of where you are now at Stanford and where you came from. Sure. I'll start out by saying I think I have the best job in the world. I am at Stanford University here in the heart of Silicon Valley. And I am in charge of energy, which is both electricity as well as thermal energy, water, which includes everything from potable water to recycled water to we have actually a lake water system for irrigation. So I have three dams that I'm responsible for, but also our zero waste program, which is very, very aggressive. And then also our Office of Sustainability. And for those who don't know, Stanford is one of the top handful of sustainable universities in the world. We have a platinum rating from something called AASHE. And I'm not going to try to, it's the Higher Ed Sustainability Organization. I can't remember exactly what that stands for. But we've been walking the walk on sustainability for in very broad terms and going very deep for about a decade now and really just getting started. And what I do is everything from 24-7 operations to the very, very long-term planning and positioning and investment to keep us at the cutting edge and really take all the horsepower at Stanford University, both in the staff and on the academic side, 
as well as the extraordinary ecosystem that we're within here in Silicon Valley to try to create applied innovation solutions. In other words, try to get out as close to the cutting edge as we can, cost effectively, but also with the kind of extraordinary reliability that the university requires. In just an incredibly exciting job, I, I end up with what I call productive insomnia because I wake up at two o'clock in the morning not worrying about things, but actually thinking about all the possibilities. A little underslept, but uh, having a great time. Wow. That's, uh, the scope of the university is just incredible. And you said they call it the farm. It's a nice little uh, term for something that's not low-key. <laughs> yes. The farm is a historical nickname for Stanford because I've heard a lot of different explanations. From the highway, it looks like a farm. It also used to be farmland before the Stanford family bought it many, many decades ago for the university. But it is actually over 8,000 acres of campus, only a few hundred of which are developed. So we have a tremendous amount of real estate up in the foothills, forested with reservoirs and dams and all sorts of research going on. It's a very, very pretty place, I have to say. If you ever have a chance, please come by. I'll be knocking on your door. It sounds beautiful. And you just a quick note on your background. You're now in Silicon Valley, but you've been in Burbank for a long time at a different position. I was. I was at Burbank Water and Power, running power for them. Just started with Stanford about six months ago, but it was almost a decade at Burbank Water and Power, which is a very, very innovative, vertically integrated municipal utility down in Southern California, the media capital of the world. So we had residential customers, but also the Disney lot and the Warner Brothers lot and the biggest Ikea in North America. This is really cool. Nickelodeon is right across the street from Burbank Water and Power. So SpongeBob literally lives across the street from Burbank Water and Power. But, uh, you know, very, very cutting edge, a whole lot of innovation going on there. Before that, I was in the global power industry, everything from startups and private equity, greenfield developments, mergers and acquisitions, and had my own startup for a while doing projects in the Middle East and North Africa. But yeah, it's been a, it's been a wonderfully varied career across, mostly across energy, but also water and now sustainability more broadly. I feel like everything that I've done in the past, as fragmented and random as it seemed, has really led me up to, to this point. And this decade, this time in our lives, I see the power industry and the world changing more in the next decade than it has in the last century. And I feel there are a lot of us who are really positioned to make a difference to really strike while the iron is hot and move the world forward. You know, again, sustainability in general, but energy is is part and parcel of that. For sure. Well, at Smart Energy Decisions, we certainly agree with you on that. So your experience gives us a lot to talk about, but I want to uh, start with back to Stanford and the sustainability goals that have been set on the campus. And also at a high level, let's start weaving in how DERs fit into that plan. Sure. Like I said, we're, we're very aggressive with sustainability and, and really walking the walk and not just talking the talk. We had established some zero carbon goals for our energy supply, our power supply. To frame that up a little bit, it's not just the electricity that's coming into the campus to keep the lights on and keep the electrical devices running, but it's also the electricity that drives a 600 or so million dollar thermal plant that is really the beating heart of the campus, making both chilled water and hot water. So we are really electrically driven already. And in fact, 
we now have two power purchase agreements with solar farms in California, one of which is coming online next year and actually has a very big battery associated with it. But we will be more than 100% renewable in that electric supply as of the middle of next year. And again, not only the electric loads directly within the campus, but also this electric thermal, electrically driven thermal plant, which in, in and of itself is about a two-day conference to talk about. But if you get a chance, Central Energy Facility, Stanford University, it's also called SESI, Stanford Energy systems innovations i think but if you google that you can we've, we've got a lot of really cool stuff you can geek out on that we've set these zero carbon goals but here we are in it'll be early mid 2022 when we're already at 100 plus percent renewable energy we have goals around waste zero waste by 2030 uh, we have very aggressive water goals so you know again really walking the walk on sustainability and in energy in particular so let's go back a little bit. I want to dig in a little deeper on this thermal facility. So this is eventually going to be run 100% on renewable energy, which is kind of a unicorn. <laughs> That's what everybody wants. Not everybody's able to get there. So talk to us a little bit. Now it's running through these two PPAs. Yes, yes. The supply is through the these two PPAs. And for anybody, you know, if you're familiar with the California energy system, you realize that there is tremendous opportunity for renewable energy in the state and connected to the California grid, but it is also the grid is also having its challenges in terms of wildfire and in terms of installed capacity and therefore reliability on the hottest days. So we are very fortunate to be on the cusp of getting 100% renewable energy to run everything. But at the same time, we're also we're also dependent on a grid that is not under our control. In other words, we have two interconnections with the with the California ISO through Pacific Gas and Electric, and that those are our lifelines. So getting to the, the DER question, one of my big challenges in this role is to figure out reliability in terms of in a, in a context of both intensive electrification. In other words, we're running every, almost everything on electricity now, and, and that's only set to increase as we, as we add more transportation to that. So you've got this intensive electrification, but you've also got a decarbonizing grid at the macro level and an intense effort to decarbonize locally as well. So how do you create reliability and resilience while also decarbonizing? And so I look at the Stanford campus, frankly, as one big microgrid in that we need exceptional reliability, exceptional reliability. And we provide that, but how do we provide that given that we are connected to the California grid, given that that grid is decarbonizing, and given that if we're going to achieve our broader greenhouse gas goals, can we still have diesel gen sets as emergency generators for each building. Is that okay? Right now, it's necessary from a building code perspective. It's necessary from a reliability perspective, but that's not a long-term solution from a sustainability perspective. So that's, that's a nut I'm trying to crack. And I look at our campus as a microgrid in the same, facing that challenge in the same way that I look at a hospital, our hospitals facing that challenge. I look at a data center in California facing that challenge. How do we get that reliability and that resilience 
while simultaneously decarbonizing. That is is one of the the big and exciting challenges that I think we're all facing going forward. That's top on your to-do list, I'm sure. So you bring up a lot of issues that we're going to circle back on. I mean, you can't be in California and not be thinking about resilience and reliability. But before we do that, talk a little bit more the thermal facility. How was that system developed? I would like to take even a a molecule of credit for that. I can't. That was my my very, very smart, very, very forward-looking successors in these roles. Stanford, for many, many years, had a cogeneration facility called Cardinal Cogen, which was a standard gas turbine and cogenerating burning natural gas. And that provided both an electric supply to the campus that was on campus, uh, so on-site generation, so a big measure of reliability and resilience there, but also provided a tremendous amount of steam. And the whole campus, both heating and cooling, was driven by this the steam element of the cogeneration plant. When that plant left, reached the end of its life, Stanford had a really interesting problem to solve. How do we replace that without necessarily doing a more backward-looking, less environmentally sensitive cogeneration plant running on natural gas, how do we look forward? And my very, very smart predecessors, a guy named Joe Stagner, who's now retired but had my job before, was really the, the driving force behind this. He said, look, let's, let's take a look at first principles. Do we really need power generation on site? Probably not. We have these two interconnections. We have opportunities on the grid to bring in renewable energy that we would don't have the, the scale to do on the campus. But also, do we really need steam? Do we really need a high temperature thermal product? Or can we meet our needs more efficiently and more cost effectively with hot water and chilled water as opposed to steam at a much higher temperature? The answer was, we really don't need a cogeneration facility, but to convert a campus, hundreds of buildings, from a steam-based system to a hot and cold water-based system, you're talking about dozens of miles of piping. You're talking about all of these devices within the building that are used to steam inputs and now have to be re-engineered for hot and chilled water inputs. And then there was the question of, how do we make this more efficient within the campus? If you've got a building that is needs cool and is putting out hot, and then you have a building 100 yards away that, that needs hot but is putting out cool, why are we constantly changing the temperature of those inputs and outputs? Why don't we actually just take the hot where it's not needed and take it to where it's needed, take the cool where it isn't needed and take it to where it's needed? So what we ended up with was really a very, very kind of serial number one sort of facility working with vendors for absorption chillers, for example, and how do we make this work? It's quite something. And we actually have delegations from all over the country and all over the world coming to Stanford to see, oh my God, you guys guys actually did this. And how can we do this, whether we're in Northern Europe, where the cool, the heating loads are much, much higher, or we're in New Jersey, where you've got both. It's been, you know, again, I would love to take any credit for it at all. I can't. But it is really a brilliant solution and a very forward-looking solution in a very, very high, and I say this with love, a very high-maintenance environment. We have a whole lot of loads that simply can't 
be curtailed. Or if they are curtailed, it's going to be very, very expensive, very disruptive. So my back in 2015, we switched on the central energy facility. We are now in the process of doubling the chilling capacity because the campus growth has been much faster than we thought. And the climate curve has been much steeper than we thought. So we're actually spending money right now to double the chilling capacity to meet that. Again, I zero credit for me. This second PPA comes online in early to mid next year. And all of a sudden we are 100% plus renewable. So a really cool outcome. But going back to that reliability and resilience challenge, how do we provide reliability and resilience in this larger decarbonization picture? And given that the California ISO is not in and of itself is not as, as reliable as we would otherwise want it to be. I want to stay on the subject of reliability and resilience and in California with the wildfires, the weather, with everything, it couldn't be a bigger issue. You're sending some of the smoke from your fires this way that we don't need, but we need your ideas and those will take. So let's talk a little bit. What is it? What's going on in California and how are you dealing with these issues? What specifically is happening? How do I put this in a way that is both accurate and, and adequately politically minded? I'm a kid from Chicago who lived in New York forever. I never thought about wildfires until I moved out here 10 years ago. Frankly, I didn't think a whole lot about shade because if you have humidity, shade doesn't make a big difference. But especially for me, being someone who's still you know, only a decade as a Californian, the circumstances are different. Wildfires are a lot like earthquakes in that they're relatively difficult to predict. They're, it's not like you can watch a tornado marching across the Midwestern Plains. It's not like you can watch a nor'easter marching up the eastern seaboard. These are very sudden, very random events. Because of climate change, wildfire season and earthquake is like earthquake season. It's all the time now. It's not just a part, portion of the year. So I, I think we're, we're scrambling, frankly. I think we are in a situation where the infrastructure isn't built for this level of fire and this level of uncertainty about fire, certainly it creates massive challenges for air quality, some of which is, is literally blowing all the way across to the Atlantic Ocean, which is astounding to me. But it is a, I want to say a brave new world, but it's also a, a scary and uncertain new world. I think this wildfire reality is the new normal, and we're just not positioned for that yet. We're not positioned to be confident in the reliability and the resilience of our systems and our infrastructure and our businesses and our economies in this very uncertain, very hot, combustible new normal. We end up with a lot of tactical decisions to try to mitigate that. But honestly, I don't think we have a strategy yet as a society out here. I think we're still fighting fires, so to speak, terrible pun, as opposed to actually really rethinking the system for this new normal. Unfortunately, that pun fits and another big item on your list. Uh, it has to be when you're in California. I want to back up to something else. You mentioned earlier, you talked about building, you know, dealing with something, buildings that have different needs 100 feet apart. But something we talked about is the granularity of the needs where you've got the example you had given me a couple of weeks ago is you have a physics lab next to a classroom. 
physics yeah. lab is going 24-7, the classroom, hopefully the students aren't in there 24-7. So you've got a different different load needs room to room. And how are DERs part of that picture and helping you cope with that? It's an evolving solution right now. And, and just, to, just to recap the example, we have a whole lot of buildings that are exactly that, where we have a multi-million dollar physics experiment going on in one room. We have a classroom next to that. We have an office next to that, literally on the same hallway. And one of the things, going back to reliability and resilience, one of the things that we are, are trying to get our arms around is if we do have a curtailment, whether it's electricity or thermal or both, how do we keep the physics lab running in this room while curtailing the classroom and the office in the rooms next to it? And that ends up being a very, very challenging thing from a controls perspective. How do we make sure that that happens and that everyone can rely upon that happening, but also that it happens not by human intervention, a whole lot of people going out and turning dials and flipping switches and making adjustments, but that it happens instantaneously as a matter of an, as a function of an algorithm, as opposed to a function of human intervention. So that's the, there's a, there's a, a really, really challenging instrumentation controls issue there. But then there's also an issue from a DER perspective. If we have the simplest of all DERs, if we have a, a diesel gen set sitting next to the building, are we really confident that when that diesel gen set kicks on with its limited amount of capacity, that it's bypassing the classroom and going straight to the physics lab with its finite capacity? We, in a lot of circumstances, were, we think that's the case, but to really make that a no-brainer, reliable outcome is something that, that we really have to dig in with. And then when you start adding things like alternative DERs, like a solar panels or like a battery, how do you think about those which are inherently more complex from an operational perspective than a diesel gen set that you can just flip on and off and work the throttle on and dispatch? Solar panels are only going to work when the sun is out. Batteries have finite capacity and are also pretty expensive and still take up a fair amount of real estate. So these are all issues that we are we are really wrestling with in the Stanford environment, which, as I said, is a very, very high expectation environment and high expectation, again, both in terms of reliability, but also in terms of sustainability. So there's an intense need for reliability and predictability within the buildings, but then an intense need for decarbonization, even for what we call the last 10% of fossil fuel generation, which are a lot of which is are those uh, emergency gen sets. We are right at the beginning of, of trying to, to solve that Rubik's cube. And a lot of that is instrumentation and controls, but a lot of that too is how are these buildings wired and what are, going back to that, that word granularity, what ex are the exact needs of the spaces that we're trying to cover through an emergency? Can we do it with a four-hour battery? Or is that just 
icing and not the cake. We are we are just at the beginning of a, I think, a very intensive and very, very granular effort to understand that and then to adapt the entire value chain of our infrastructure soup to nuts to make that work in this in this brave new world. Lincoln, I want to ask you something. Stanford is literally in an interesting position given the proximity to Silicon Valley and all the tech companies. So what's the intersection between the students and the campus, the faculty, and what goes on in the tech world? It is very wide and very deep, much more than I expected even coming up here. Stanford is really the the heart of Silicon Valley. You look at so many of the innovations and the brand names that we just take for granted these days. I'll, I'll start with Google. Apparently, the original Google server is still is in some sort of glass case in the basement of one of the engineering buildings because literally Google started at Stanford. You drive around the campus and you look at the names of the donors on the buildings, and it is literally a, a who's who of innovation, both within this country and globally. And the other thing that I've found just in my in my six months at Stanford is that there is a tremendous informal ecosystem around of both Stanford grads, but also the faculty, as well as the larger Palo Alto Silicon Valley ecosystem. There is an incredibly symbiotic relationship between the university and the venture capital community and the startup community and the innovation community if you, I guess, to, to put it more broadly. So it's incredibly exciting. And in fact, Deborah, I know you're in, in New York. It, it reminds me a lot. It's a version of that energy that you feel in Manhattan, especially during the work week where the air is literally buzzing with commerce. And to the point where you almost can't escape it. It, it, it gets, you know, you just feel it in the air. You feel that in Tokyo. You feel that in Seoul. You feel that in London. Out here, it's, in my impression, is that it's that same sort of energy, but it's innovation. Everybody just assumes innovation as the base case. And so everything can be made better. Our our parks can be made better. Our our roads can be made better. Every aspect of our lives is a subject for innovation. And that is a really, really cool energy out here. And the way that manifests itself is through that intensely symbiotic relationship between the university and the larger ecosystem. You end up with innovations that might happen outside of Stanford and maybe just a mile away that get piloted within Stanford. You have professors and grad students and undergrad students who are working on things in terms of applied innovation that goes back and forth between academia and the innovation economy. It's it's just a tremendously exciting place to be. And and frankly, you know, I mentioned before not getting quite enough sleep. This is another reason because there is always somebody to talk to. There is always somebody to brainstorm with. There is always there, there are so many opportunities for pilot projects and demonstration projects and and going all the way back to the most basic research. It is just an incredibly exciting place to be. 
I'm glad you used the phrase energy. You know, it energizes you. That's really what it sounds like. It's a whole different meaning of the word energy, but very palpable, it seems, on campus. That's great. That's really exciting to hear and benefits everybody from students and faculty all the way to the, those investors and the innovators. And that's terrific. It's a it nice really ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things, you know, just to, to jump back to, to energy, 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 one of the things that that is so exciting now is that there really is a, we're developing a very, very active energy and water and sustainability component to that innovation. I think a lot of that was on the on the fringes, uh, we were looking at at fintech and IT and the you know e-commerce and all the things that we traditionally associate with Silicon Valley. What I'm seeing now is a a real move into sustainability broadly, but energy and water and all of the things that are going to help us reach our sustainability goals are really maturing as topics as things for investment now, as opposed to things just to talk about. And that's incredibly exciting. Yeah, you better start getting some sleep. You're going to need it. There's (laughs) a lot going on. I just have one more, and lots of coffee too. One more question, and I, I apologize for the rhyme, but I can't help myself. Thinking about the journey that you've taken going from Muni to Uni, Sorry, but I had to do it. But I'm bummed. Thank you. <laughs> what has that journey been like? What is, what's been the surprises so far and the challenges that you're facing? I was very lucky to come out of, as I mentioned, a very progressive, very innovative municipal utility in Burbank Water and Power. They they have a history. I have to say they now because I, I was saying we for the longest time. I've got to get myself out of that. But they have a, a very long and very deep track record of innovation from 100% smart meters to lead platinum buildings to doing some really innovative things. My successors are doing some really innovative things around renewable integration, for example, and, and how to run a renewably-based power system. So I was, I was very lucky to come out of that environment. What I'm finding at Stanford, though, is that there are some, some significant similarities in that it's very much an environment of applied innovation. You need to innovate, but it also has to work. So we're right at the at the crossroads of innovation and pragmatism, so to speak, innovative pragmatism. And we also have very, very demanding, very high needs customers. In Burbank, it was the studios. And it was biggest IKEA in North America. It was it was a very very knowledgeable, very progressive residential community. And here, you know, I joke: you throw a rock, you hit a Nobel Prize winner. It's just that sort of environment where there are a whole there's a whole lot of research going on that we just can't stop. So you have a, a tremendous drive for reliability. You also have a tremendous drive for decarbonization, as we've talked about. But then there's also a a level of quality that's expected here. I call it SQ, Stanford quality, where there is simply an expectation that everything is going to be as good, as, as perfect as it can possibly be. And you see that throughout the campus. That is just the ethos of the university, that we're going to do it as best as it can possibly be done. And that's just how Stanford does things. So that's where 
that's one of the differences is that we are because of where we are and because of the resources that we have at our disposal we're able to take sustainability and innovation to a higher level but then the other part of it i think is that our stakeholders and our customers are a much more diverse group in terms of their needs and their expectations than a typical municipal utility we have the dorms and the food service we have what you see in my in my background behind me very very old buildings that have very specific needs but also incredibly advanced buildings and everything in between that we need to serve at the same level of adaptability and and resilience and 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 basic service and then we also have an academic community that adds a tremendous amount of value has very very strong opinions on things as they should we have a student population that adds a ton of value and has very very strong opinions on things as they should so we have we have a lot of different stakeholders probably i i think a more diverse stakeholder group in terms of priorities and needs than in a typical municipal utility but at the same time those are variations on that sq that i mentioned that stanford quality so none of them are easy they're just diverse it's a significant challenge it is both incredibly thrilling but also a little bit nerve-wracking to be operating at this level i wouldn't miss it for the world but you have to know what you're getting into exactly well it sounds like you are prepared for it you have a great challenge ahead of you. We wish you all the luck. We look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you again. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you, know. you very much for the opportunity. Thanks again to Lincoln and Deborah for a great conversation. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for listening to this podcast and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn about how you can become a part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to have conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Lincoln in this podcast, on our website, and at our events all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter, Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.